seated. So far, the Apostle Paul has pointed us to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's pointed to it and how it's active in the life of a believer. Indeed, he was looking forward to going to the church of Rome so that he could implement the full power of the gospel in their lives. And he also understood that it was the answer to the greatest need of an unbeliever. And this dual solution that the gospel provides, both for power for the believer and salvation for the unbeliever, all works together to reveal the infinite righteousness of God. Now, if you want to understand righteousness, I want you to think about something that you're an expert on, sin. Okay? It's the opposite of that. It's the very exact opposite of that. The gospel reveals the infinite righteousness of God and not only reveals it, but has a way to give it to you and me and all who believe and trust in him. That's the good news of the gospel, and it's revealed here in the first chapter of Romans. But verse 18 through 32, this problem is presented. These non-Jews, these Gentiles, they're in big trouble. And the gospel, as it interacts with their world, does so in a special way. They don't have the law like the Jews do. They're ignorant of the laws that God has given through his word. They know the law that's been written on their hearts that we'll learn about later, but they don't know about the law that's written in the scriptures. They don't have a culture that's been shaped by the Torah. They don't have family units and a calendar that celebrates the saving acts of God. And so, Their culture has broken down in a spectacularly ugly way. With the Jewish nation, whenever they would go astray, God had a covenant relationship with them. And what would he would do? He would give them some discipline, getting them back on the right path. But with the Gentile nations, he did not have a covenant relationship with them. And so they went deeper and deeper into Decline. The only way God interacted with them is when he used them to discipline the Jewish nation. But praise God, he revealed even in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that it was his will to rescue Gentiles and to bring them into the family of God. And we get a good picture of that in Jesus' ministry And as Paul understands Jesus' ministry, this functions as commentary on that. Paul explores how deep in sin the Gentiles have gone here in this second half of chapter 1. And he frames it by looking at it through the gospel. Because if you look at your sin in any way, then through the saving, redeeming hope of Jesus Christ, you're just going to be depressed. You're just going to be sad. You're going to be filled with remorse, and it's going to be the kind that doesn't even lead to repentance, that doesn't lead to anything good. You're just going to 
crumble inside and collapse upon yourself. So Paul explores this through, by looking through the redeeming love of God. And so as he shows us the ugliest sins of the Gentile nations, many of these individual Gentiles, which were now a part of the church in Rome, and they brought some of their baggage with them, he shows how God has created sin and its interaction with the human nature to be self-regulating because sin destroys everything it touches and therefore it destroys you and me. And we just can't keep getting worse and worse and worse because sin will have an effect on us that destroys us. And that's good news in a number of ways because sometimes before it destroys us, it destroys our idol. And we get to be set free from it because sin has such a corrosive ability to it. So those who fall in love with their own bodies and their own lusts, we see in Romans chapter 1, well, God allows those very organs to break down. Those who fall in love with their own intellect and their own mind, God allows that to be corrupted and confused. The second half of Romans 1, the lesson here is that you don't break God's law. It breaks you. You don't master sin. It masters you. The very things that we idolize and worship and we get our identity and our worth and our value from end up being the very things that steal our identity and our value and leave us feeling empty and alone when we're done. That's what happens to those who don't turn from their sins as the believing Romans had done. You are left empty and discarded by the world, and even the sins that separated you from God no longer make you happy. But what about believers that experience these kinds of sins? Because you and I know believers that experience sins just like these. We know believers, you know, not you personally, of course, but you know people who have. Martin Luther said in the first of his uh, 95 theses, he said that the Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, number one, how is that possible except that our entire life still struggles with sin, right? That's the reality of the Christian life is that when you became born again, all the sin just didn't fall off of you and all of a sudden you were perfect. That didn't happen. And thus the entire life of the believer is one that is caught up in repentance. But number two, that can sound depressing. That can sound frustrating. Uh, is Luther saying that Christians will never make any progress through their repentance? That all we'll be doing for the rest of our lives is apologizing to God for the things that we're doing wrong? I don't think that was Luther's point at all. He's saying that repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. That a pervasive, all-of-life repentance is the best sign that God is at work deeply building 
the character of Jesus in you. Tim Keller talks about, though, that there's a type of repentance that doesn't work. He asks us to consider that in a, a very re- outwardly religious form of religion, the, the, the purpose of repentance is to keep God happy so that he'll keep blessing you and answering your prayers. And so naturally, when the going gets tough, you start to look for stuff to repent of. You look for different ways to say you're sorry. This means that this very religious repentance is self-serving, and it's designed to placate an angry deity. But in the gospel that we see revealed here in the true religion of Jesus Christ, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of knowing that we are forgiven through our union with Jesus Christ and thus weaken our impulse to do anything contrary to God's heart, God's will, and God's law. If that kind of repentance is at the center of the Christian life, that God-seeking, unity-rejoicing, sin-murdering aggression is at the core of your repentance, well then, it behooves us to get a better look at that here in the text as we interact with a couple of these sins that we struggle with here today. The two things I'm looking at this week, greed and disobedience to parents, is because there are a number of sins in our world that we recognize as sin. You know, someone who hurts a child, even the rankest of unbeliever will form a squad with a pitchfork and torch and go out after that person. You hurt a baby, you're in trouble. Unless, unless it's abortion, and then somehow it's okay. Don't ask me to figure that out for you. But there are a lot of other sins that we overlook and we don't think much of. I did a brief, very unscientific survey of my 800 Facebook friends this week and interacted with them about sins that are, that are really a big deal but that our culture doesn't care anything about. And the two I want to talk about are two that's in the text today, two that they repeatedly mentioned without interacting with this text. And I think that shows us that the the word of God isn't something that's just rooted in Paul's time and like, like a museum piece that you would go look at and, oh, how interesting, those are the sins they struggled with in A.D. 62. How fascinating. No, these are sins that we struggle with today. And Paul, as he spoke, was speaking to us today. And thus, there's help for us today for those who struggle with these things. The first one that I want to mention in the text today and that my friends mentioned was greed. Greed. You may have heard of a movie called Wall Street. There was a guy named Gordon Gecko who's on Wall Street. He makes a, a, a speech, a speech that's taken from real life. And his speech starts out with 
greed is good. And he goes on to associate greed with capitalism in all of its exuberant excesses. The impulse to make more and more, to have more and more, and to measure our progress and significance in life as based on having things, that's what I'm talking about today. It's the American dream. But I'm not actually worried about Gordon Gecko or pagan Americans out there chasing the almighty dollar. I'm worried about me. And I'm worried about you. Remember, Paul was writing to the church in Rome. And we have to be thinking about this because the story of Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, roughly equivalent to the office of elder, well, that was a story that revolved around the sin of greed and money. Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit about money, stealing from the church. The rich man going away sad and grieved because he would rather serve his money than Jesus. These are stories that can't be ignored that it's all too easy for us to insert ourselves into. As we raise enormous gobs of money for our future building. It will be so easy to measure how well we're doing as a church or how successful we are or how faithful we are based on how much is in our bank account. Uh, an RUF staff friend of mine at University of Central Florida, Lee Wright, commented this week, said that the church has bought the lie that capitalism is Christianity. The church's sustainability is more focused on money in the bank than mission to the place. He's right. It's not just the word of faith movement that people like Benny Hinn and Paula White are a part of. It's people like us that measure how well, around January 1st, let's say when it comes around again next year, and when we look back at the previous year and we measure, well, how good was last year? How big of a part does, how much money did I make and how many possessions do I have? How significant is that as you look back on your last year? Is that the big picture? Is that the main thing? That's how you know you're a materialist. Is when, by and large, you, your marriage could be in shambles, your relationship with your children is awful, you can't remember the last time you read your scriptures, but you're making a lot of money, and so you feel okay about life. That's how you know you're greedy. The little tight circle of the American dream of working hard, getting more and more until you can own your own business. And then you send your kids to college to learn how to grow the next phase of the business. And then they come in and take over, and then you repeat that over and over again. That's a nightmare, not a dream. 
because I can do that without Jesus. I don't need Jesus to do that. I just need cash flow and people who will buy my products. And we can't leave Christ out of the American dream and still celebrate it. No, I'm not voting for Bernie. That's not what this is about. Money is a resource that we manage. And if we don't manage it, it will manage us. We will serve it. There's a reason why the scriptures say, no man can serve two masters, God or mammon. You're going to have to make a choice. Here's the good news. One day money is going to disappear. Have you noticed in the scriptures that there's no money in heaven? What's it going to be like then? How will we function without money? Just watch Star Trek. That's how they do it. But that frees us up to spend our money here on things that matter to the Lord and not hoard it and not waste it and not worship it. The second sin on Paul's list today that is dangerous is disobedience to parents. Listen to this context And if you're a younger person right now, I want you to elbow your parents and say, Mom and Dad, listen to this, because they need to hear this. Here is what the text says. these, These people invent new ways of sinning. They disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promise, are heartless and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to... Die, yet they do them anyway. Kids, young adults who are still living with your parents, I love you guys. I frankly love you and like you a lot more than I do the adults here. (laughs) I really do. And what I want you to get from that is that I'm your pastor too. I'm not just the pastor of the adults here. I'm the pastor of the children here. And these elders that you have, they're your elders because you are members by covenant of this church. And so we love you And it would be bad for us to see you going a direction that's dangerous to you and us say, well, that's their business, you know? Who who are we to get involved? You know, I wouldn't want to hurt their feelings. Boys will be boys. We have all these different ways of pushing back against this text. But I need to say something to you guys today. Having said all of that, I have witnessed young people in this congregation being disobedient and disrespectful to their parents. I've seen it with my own eyes. I know it's true. And you don't seem to care about the consequences, the immediate real consequences 
that your parents either threaten to give or give or the future consequences. It doesn't seem to phase some of you very much. You rationalize and pretend as if your sassy mouth, your slammed doors, your raised voice just doesn't matter. And I wouldn't be a good pastor if I allowed you to do that and didn't remind you that the not just the logical outcome, but the outcome that is promised by God's word, if you continue full speed down that path with no repentance, is that God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die. Now, for several reasons, parents recoil at what I just said. I know I'm a parent, and I know I recoil from what I just said. Number one, it's because it reflects poorly on us parents to have children that are disobedient. It makes me look bad when my kids act up. And so naturally, if I come up with a way of handling all that to where I don't look bad, well, then that makes it all better, right? We find other labels to attach to our children's disobedience. My kid's going through a phase is one of my favorites. It's going through a phase. I'm sure they'll grow out of it. Unfortunately, it's mostly true. It is a phase, but it's a phase called unbelief. Jackie Hill Perry says in her really fantastic book, Gay Girl, Good God. She says, yet unbelief doesn't see God as the ultimate good. And that's its primary problem. So I can't see sin as the ultimate evil. Instead, I see sin as a good thing. And God's commands as a stumbling block to my joy. In believing the devil, she says, I didn't need to wear a pentagram pendant. Neither did I need to memorize a hex or two. All I had to do was trust myself more than God's word. I had to believe that my thoughts, my affections, my rights, and my wishes were worthy of absolute obedience. And that in laying prostrate before the flimsy throne that I had made for myself, that that was the ultimate good thing. So, kids, you're going to find a lot of excuses for being disobedient. My dad was mean to me. And so I used his meanness toward me as an excuse to be disobedient to him and to be dishonoring to him. I thought that was a real good excuse. It wasn't a real good excuse. It made the situation worse is what it did. Maybe you think that your mom and dad just won't let you have any fun. Maybe you think that mom and dad won't find out if I'm careful. But really, maybe you just really, really, really super duper want to. Maybe you're willing to live with the consequences. No matter what my parents do, 
whatever they do, the worst punishment they've ever given me is not as good as what I'm about to do. All I'm going to get is a spanking. All I'm going to get is something taken away for a week. So really, I can, I can deal with that punishment. So I'm going to just go ahead and do this. Well, the answer to your situation, kids, is that you feel like you're being deprived of joy, that something you deserved is being taken away from you, and there's nothing you can do to get it under ordinary moral means, and so you have to do something immoral to get it. That's a lie from Satan. You can do something moral and good and honorable and be happy and be joyful and get what you want because your wanter is going to change in the process. This isn't the problem that you have, guys, isn't so much the problem of obeying your parents as it is obeying God. God says to trust Him rather than yourself. To please him rather than pleasing yourself. To trust his word rather than believe your lies about your parents and about how that thing is going to make you happy. Believe that God loves you. And like the waiting father in Luke 15, his arms are outstretched calling to you, welcoming you to come into his loving arms and be received and loved and celebrated as a repenting sinner. And you'll find that 99% of your problems, your parents, will suddenly go away, change, or you'll see them in a dramatically different way. Jesus says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That message is not just for adults. It's for every young person here who's been trying to make it through the difficult world that you live in on your own. Christ has another way. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. I can hear you saying this right now because this is what I did when I was a kid. Wait a minute. I've thought about this theologically because I was a real smart kid. And this is what I thought. I thought, okay, the pastor said that God has forgiven me of all my sin. Check. Okay. And therefore, that means if he's forgiven me for all my sins, I also heard the pastor say that God accepts me the way I am. Check. So if he's forgiven me of all my sins and accepts me for the way I am, that means I don't have to change and I can still go to heaven when I die. Success. Here's the problem with that. It is deceptive and confusing to say that God loves you the way you are. Pastors have said that sort of stuff before. I probably have said it before, but it's confusing to say it that way. Here's the right way to say it. God accepts us despite the way you are. He receives us only as we are by faith 
in union with Christ and for the sake of Christ's own honor as we are united to him through being regenerated and born again. He doesn't intend to leave us as he found us, but to transform us into the image of his son. And that may very well be something that irritates your parents. Jesus Jesus irritated his parents, and he was as good as good can be. So I'm not trying to initially address the irritation and conflict between you and your parents. That's secondary to your lack of trust and faith in God and your lack of going to God's gospel promises to get you through the difficult passage of life that you are in and you're not alone. You're just not alone. You don't have to do it on your own. You just don't have to. Thank God that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. In Romans 7, Paul addresses his own struggles with the hidden and persistent sins that have still stuck with him. He says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but there's another law at work within me waging war against the law of my mind, and it makes me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man that I am, he says. What a wretched boy, what a wretched girl. Who will rescue me from this body that has been subjected to this death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the good news for his church here today. That every one of us have gone our own way, have broken any one of the Ten Commandments countless times. And apart from Christ, my own self-effort at defeating sin will leave me just as condemned and exhausted on top of it. However, what I could not do, Christ did. He sent his own son into the world to die on the cross for sins just like these that are listed in Romans chapter 1. And so Jesus loved you and me so much that he laid down his life for us and rose from the dead after three days, thereby announcing that his sacrifice was complete, that his death had finished and completed the payment necessary to God for our sin. And so he rose victorious. So does God see my sins like these, my greed, my disrespect, my lies, my stealing? Yes, but in his heart, because of Jesus Christ, he has already forgiven believers. And even though my sin grieves him and hurts others, God is still not angry with me because all of his anger has been poured out on Jesus Christ. But God's grief is connected to the fact that in my moments and minutes and hours and days of sin, I am not receiving the fullness of the love and grace that he has for me. And that grieves his spirit. 
But he who began a good work in me and in you will be faithful to complete it. Amen? And he will work in me and in you more repentant faith than my sin could ever hope to overwhelm. And he will give me the will to walk in holiness and obedience and a holy hatred of my sins. And God will give us the power to act on that hatred with a sincere violence toward the sins that separate me from enjoying God's greatest love. The way to kill these sins at the very root is found in humble reliance on the power of God as revealed and renewed in day by day rehearsing the gospel and all of its implications for me. Start preaching the gospel to yourself, kids, adults. And as the hymn says, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You start preaching the gospel to yourself and meditating on Christ's death for you and his sacrifice for you. And kids, your hate and your grudge against your parents will begin to melt away because you'll realize that Jesus died for them and loves them. And so you hating them doesn't make any sense. God loves you and he loves me and he will take care of us and not allow us to linger and live in greed and sass and hatred. But he will gift us more and more with repentant faith until his work in us is complete and we see him face to face. Let us pray. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We stand before you now as your church, complete.